This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's pretty well known that young people who are bullied are more likely to engage in self-harm. And usually that means physically hurting themselves up to and including trying to take their own lives. But Ryan Meldrum and his collaborators had an idea. They realized that there are many ways for children to hurt themselves that aren't simply physical. And in the internet age, one of those ways was to cyberbully themselves, posting anonymous and hurtful messages about themselves online, perhaps in hopes that others would respond positively and, in doing so, alleviate the negative feelings that came from being bullied. Meldrum is a researcher in Florida, and that's where he and his collaborators were able to get their hands on a survey of 10,000 Floridian middle and high school students. The data reveal that self-cyberbullying is not just something that happens occasionally. It's something that's rather pervasive, and it could, in fact, be on the rise. Ryan Meldrum is an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Florida International University, and his new study on digital self-harm was recently published in the journal Deviant Behavior. Ryan Meldrum, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Matt. You've been chasing questions about juvenile delinquency and aberrant behaviors for a long time now. Is there a backstory there? What, what is it about? Like, were you a juvenile delinquent? What is it about this subject that, that so fascinates you? Well, for me, Matt, part of it stemmed from my own experiences when I was in high school all the way back near the end of the the 1990s when I myself actually was subjected to certain amounts of bullying from a a few individuals. And so I had opportunities in graduate school to do some research on bullying victimization and how that relates to physical self-harm. And I kind of naturally gravitated towards that subject given my history. I think a lot of people would avoid subjects like that, right? Like I had similar experiences. I think a lot of us did. There's not a period of my life that I think I would want to go back and re-examine, right? I'd like to leave it behind. What is it about you that makes you want to go back and kind of unpack what was happening sociologically with the people who were doing this to you and, and, and with you? Well, I, I think part of it stems from the the idea and the hope that the the data that we collect uh, has potential policy implications for ways of identifying how we can prevent the occurrence of of bullying in its various manifestations. You know, obviously the type of bullying that was taking place back in the 1990s when I was in high school has evolved into new kind of nefarious types of bullying that occur online now. So if we can understand kind of the causes and the correlates of of bullying, uh, we might be able to, you know, help to prevent its occurrence through programming and intervention. Quite a bit of your work has been on adolescent self-harm in general. Before we get into this idea of digital self-harm, let, let's talk about the, like, the subject in general. What makes that such an attractive topic to study? I think part of it is just the, the seriousness of the behavior, in part because you know, we know from a very large number of studies and, and ever-increasing number of studies that you know, there's a, a consistent link between you know, teenagers who engage in self-harm and non-suicidal self-injury, and they end up, uh, many of them, not all, but many of them end up graduating to suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. So for me, it kind of stems back to policy implications, ways in which we can prevent or intervene to 
reduce the likelihood of graduating to more serious, harmful behaviors. It's been now about 10 years since a researcher, a data and society researcher named Dana Boyd first used the phrase digital self-harm in, in a blog post. This this is a phenomenon she stumbled onto when talking to people who were looking into cyberbullying on a network called Formspring, a social network called Formspring. And, and these people who were looking into this, as, as they did so, they were running into a lot of cases in which the teenagers using this platform were being cyberbullied by anonymous commenters who, with a bit of investigation, turned out to be the bully and the victim. When did you run into Boyd's piece? And, and when you did, did your head explode like mine did? So I actually wasn't introduced to the topic of digital self-harm uh, until around 2017, um, when I had the opportunity to read a previous study that was done by a couple of the co-authors on my current paper, Justin Patchen and Samir Hinduja, who are very well known for their research on cyberbullying and, and its effects. And so when you get introduced to this idea that children are, in essence, cyberbullying themselves, what goes through your mind? I think you kind of hit it on hit it on the head there. I was I was pretty blown away by this. Um, to be honest, somewhat skeptical of it, and that kind of led me to want to conduct my own study on it. And you know, here we are talking about the the new study that I've co-authored with uh, Patchen and Hinduja, uh, pretty much you know verifying uh, what they found in terms of digital self harm and what it's associated with. You began your career as a researcher at a time in which self-harm was a well-known thing, when we're talking about physical self-harm, but your career has coincided largely with the explosion of social media and you know what a lot of people call digital personhood. And this idea, this idea that you guys are talking about in this paper is still, even though it was introduced 10 years ago conceptually, there's still not a lot of research in it. Is that in part just because we've kind of had to reformulate our very ideas of what who people are in, in, in the digital media age? Yeah, I, I suppose there's any number of answers to that. But you know, I think a lot of people are perhaps not as connected with younger generations and aware of what their lives are like and what their lives are organized around. And um, the idea of, of digital personhood and people creating alternative personas for themselves online is something that I, I think we're starting to increase recognition of, but in terms of the dark side of things, the dark side of, of social media, I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So let's talk about some of that work. Let's talk about what you found. You looked at data from uh, 9,500 roughly middle and high school students in Florida. A lot of them reported having engaged in self-cyberbullying? What, what were the numbers? So what we found, there were two different questions we included on, on the survey. One of them was asking the participants if they'd engaged in digital self-harm or cyberbullying. And we, we provided a, a definition for them to read from. So it was clear to them what we were intending. And we allowed them to indicate how frequently they had done the behavior in the past 30 days and then if they've done the behavior of the past 12 months. And so what we found is that 
uh, 10% of the 9,500 participants said they had engaged in digital self-harm in the past 12 months, and 6% said that they had done so in the past 30 days. This coincides with that other study that you were talking about. I mean, this is a substantial number of students. And you said, you know, like initially you were a little bit skeptical of this. When you see that one in 10 says that they've done this in the last 12 months, that's not an inconsequential number at all, is it? It's not. And especially when you consider that we were very specific about asking them to think about the past 12 months of their lives and, you know, the limited number of studies that had looked at the prevalence of, of this type of behavior in the past, oftentimes were querying or asking about whether or not they had engaged in it at all at any point in their life. Uh, or another study was asking college students whether or not they'd ever done it at all when they were in high school. So, you know, those past studies were finding percentages of anywhere from 6% to 9% of like lifetime prevalence. And so to find a prevalence rate of, of 10% in our, in our current study was surprising to me and, and, and alarming. Do we know how this relates to physical self-harm? Are young people who digitally abuse themselves in this way also more likely to, to be the ones who are physically hurting themselves? Our study wasn't able to directly look at that, but Samir and Justin's previous study that came out in 2017, they did look at the association between both digital and physical self-harm. Uh, and, and they did find uh, that there was this significant overlap. If teens engaged in digital self-harm, they were also significantly more likely to engage in physical self-harm. One of the things your study, the new study, did find is that these students are more likely to do this if they have been bullied by others. Yeah, and uh, this, you know, this is something that uh, parallels with the much larger body of research linking um, getting bullied to physical self-harm. And I, I think therein lies kind of the the importance of studying this behavior of, of digital self-harm. Um, given what we know about the causes of physical self-harm, uh, you know, the studies that have been done, including the one mine that we're currently talking about, point to the same potential causes of, of bullying victimization and the resulting uh, negative emotions and anxiety and, and lowered self-esteem that bullied kids experience. And you know, they're trying to find ways to rid themselves of those negative emotions. And with the digital age, it very well be that digital self-harm is another outlet through which they can try to accomplish that. So far, we've kind of been talking about this digital self-harm in sort of an abstract way. This is like self-cyberbullying. But what does this really look like? Are there is can you offer an example of, of sort of like what someone might do that would qualify them for having committed this act against themselves. Yeah, on you know, any one of the, the constantly growing you know, social media platforms that can be used on computers and mobile phones, somebody creates an anonymous profile uh, for themselves where maybe they use, you know, just they set up a random email address to maybe verify their account, even it's still pseudo anonymous. They go on, they, they set up a profile or they set up a profile on a chat room or a message board. And uh, they might post some type of comment of like, 
you know, if I were referring to myself, if I were engaging the behavior, like, you know, oh, Ryan's, he's so ugly, he's so fat, like, why would anybody want to be his friend? And in fact, it would be me, myself posting those comments. And then kind of that's the question is what, what is the result of that? Do uh, the people that do this get some level of validation where some people stick up for them and provide comments saying like, no, no, that person's great. You know, they, you know, they're not ugly. They're like, you know, they have a, to- a bunch of friends. Or do they get comments that reinforce those negative views and perhaps make them feel even worse about themselves? Or does nobody provide any comments at all? What do you think, and I know this wasn't in the the purview of the study, but just like, what's your impulse? What happens when someone does this? Presumably one of the things that some of these young people are looking for is someone to come to the rescue. Like what happens if nobody comes to the rescue? That's, God, that's even worse, right? Yeah, I think that unfortunately is where you might have instances then where digital self-harm becomes that stepping stone to physical self-harm. Again, it's it's somewhat speculative to say that just again, because we don't have a whole lot of, of research on the topic, but yeah, that's something that is, I think, really critical to start investigating is, is, digital, is digital self-harm serving as somewhat of a replacement of physical self-harm? Is it a, a downstream you know, stepping stone to physical self-harm? Uh, and then obviously how those things connect to, you know, those people who take it even further and, you know, decide to, you know, try to take their own life. So one of the things that I thought first, and, and this has been reflected in your study as well and other observations of this is, you know, this idea that students are seeking some sort of validation, seeking some sort of attention when they do this. Is it also possible, maybe not alternatively, but collaboratively possible that this is really more akin to self-mutilation where they're actually trying to inflict and feel pain? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I'd be honest and see, I really haven't thought of it from that perspective, but that does raise an interesting prospect that for some people, they may actually be seeking out kind of an intensification of those pains. Right now, we simply just don't have the data necessary to, to really know about that. And yeah, part of that stems from the fact that the studies that have been done so far, looking at digital self-harm, or you know, these kind of these broad 30,000-foot perspectives where we you know, collect mostly quantitative data or very brief, open-ended, kind of very short responses about why they might have engaged in digital self-harm. I think this is where collaboration between academics working in university settings and on-the-ground practitioners who might be working with teenage clients one-on-one where we could perhaps get much more deeper insight into why are you doing this behavior and, and what does it do for you? That I think that perhaps is the biggest question right now is what did it do for you? Did it make you feel better? Did it make you feel worse? That's simply, we, we just don't know that yet because there's so few studies on the topic. To that end, what is the next step that you and your collaborators are planning to take on this topic? So our next step is going to be to leverage data that's been recently collected to uh, start to address that important question of whether or not kids who engage in digital self-harm are more likely to uh, attempt suicide. The data has been collected. 
And we are in the process of starting to look at what the data tells us. And you know, it would be premature for me to, to describe conclusions that you know, haven't yet gone through kind of the peer review process for publication. But uh, what, I, what I can kind of say broadly is the link that we see between physical self-harm and suicide seems to track with the link between digital self-harm and suicide. You've said you want to bring awareness to this behavior. It was certainly new to me. Do you figure there are a lot of, like, for instance, child psychologists and therapists who don't even know that this is happening yet and maybe haven't even conceptualized it yet enough to ask the questions that they would need to ask to find out about it? Based upon discussions I've had with academics, with journal editors, with some practitioners and you know, school district administrators, I think the awareness level of this behavior is still remains quite low. I, th- I think everybody you know has cyberbullying on their radar, self harm on their radar. But you know, I've spoken to journal editors as recently as two or three months ago about manuscripts on this subject, and they ask me like, "What is digital self harm? I've never heard of this." So I think right now, even though there is important research being done on this, I still think we are very much in the need for greater awareness phase of educating teachers and parents and principals. Well, and speaking of the scope of this problem, we've talked almost exclusively so far today about youth, but young people are certainly not the only people who exist in a world of digital personhood. Do you think that adults might be prone to this sort of behavior too? Yeah, I, I think it's quite possible uh, that, you know, you know, certainly there's some evidence that college students are engaging it. And, you know, I, I would have every reason to expect that there is a certain amount of digital self-harm that might be getting engaged in by adults. And also if you go even younger, because, um, you know, thus far all of the research on digital self-harm has focused upon middle school and high school students. And you know, one of the things that also stood out to me in the current study that we did was when we broke apart the data and looked at middle school students and high school students separately, that prevalence rate of one in 10 or 10% held for both groups. Mm. So that really started making me think about, you know, how young does this start? Do we need to be asking second, third graders, fourth graders about this type of behavior? Are, are they actually engaging in it? Because we know, you know things that happen on earlier in childhood can have greater cumulative effects. And so if the genesis of the beginning of digital self-harm is getting younger and younger, I think you know, that is something else that um, calls for, for research perhaps on kids younger than middle school. And as you were suggesting, perhaps maybe conducting research on digital self-harm among you know, people who are full-fledged adults in their 30s and 40s and even into their 50s. You said at the top of our conversation that one of the things that drove you toward the research that you do broadly were your own experiences having been bullied as a child. If I'm doing my math right, that was sort of in the infancy of, you know, widely accessible internet and social media. So can you see yourself in 
the data that you're looking at now, do you feel like you can relate to why this behavior would exist? Why a kid might do something like this? Well, I, w- I would say in my instance, I was quite fortunate in that I kept myself very involved in sports and extracurricular activities. So even though I I can recall for at least a good solid year period, there was this one bully who I, you know, on an, on a near day by day basis would in some manner bully me. I had various outlets through which I could, you know, distract myself from, from that bullying, uh, whether it be the cross country team or the track and field team, you know, doing early bird weightlifting with the football team. So I had ways in which I could positively cope and deal with those negative emotions. In addition to that, you know, I, I can vividly remember one particular classmate of mine who reached out to me, could see I was uh, struggling at times with the bullying and ended up befriending me. And you know, having that outlet of, of a really good friend like that, I still think fondly of, of her um, and that friendship that we had and how that helped me uh, you know, get through some difficult times in addition to, as I said, the sports outlets. But there are many students who don't have that personal support through friends or family and perhaps aren't involved in extracurriculars or sports. Who are those ones that perhaps falling through the cracks and perhaps deepening their self-isolation? I suspect that it might be those types of youth who are most vulnerable to digital self-harm. Well, it seems that that is of particular risk right now with a lot of activities having been shut down, a lot of schools having been closed, the the outlets, the sorts of things that you were talking about, the, the sports activities, or just a random friend reaching out, the avenues for that sort of support have been a little bit limited this year. They have. And one thing to note about the study that we did is that data was collected a full year before COVID, before the lockdowns took place. And so when we talk about concerns over the possibility that this behavior might be becoming more frequent or more prevalent among youth, you know, I think that prompts the need for new data collection to be asking teenagers about their behaviors over this past year where they have been locked down and their interactions with their friends have been limited to you know, the, uh, the Zoom or other group video conferencing for school. You know, I, I've said in other, some other discussions that you know, that itself provides bullies opportunities to deepen people's negative emotions. If you think about, for example, when I hold my classes or I have Zoom meetings, you know, I have a nice, relatively new computer. I can have the virtual background uh, with like the nice FIU logo. So nobody can see what's behind me, but there's plenty of students who, for example, live in homeless shelters or live in home environments that wouldn't portray wealth uh, or organization or even perhaps cleanliness in some cases. Uh, and I'm sure there's been instances where other classmates who've been in that virtual classroom setting probably have found ways to to cyberbully other students whose backgrounds aren't as well-to-do as their own. You know, this finding in your study is, I think, pretty alarming. And it calls for all these other questions to be answered as soon as possible. But data collection and analysis is a really slow process 
that's got to feel frustrating sometimes, knowing that there's so many questions that can and should be answered or, or should be answered quickly, but knowing that you're only going to be able to ask a few of them at a time and answer a few of them, you know, as time goes. I mean, that's the reality we have, but, you know, I can, I can say that, you know, the contribution that, you know, somebody like myself makes is just a very small part of the puzzle. And this is where we can, again, raise awareness to this, getting principals and school guidance counselors and parents more aware of this. I can help to inform the discussion with, you know, large scale data collection efforts, but it's going to be parents, peers, teachers, psychologists on the ground who probably are going to be able to have on a day-to-day -day basis the most, the, the greatest impact. So you know, I think that's important for having discussions like this, uh, where hopefully, you know, we're able to reach a fairly large audience of, of individuals. And if that stimulates discussions, between parents and teachers or uh, students and their friends or psychologists and their clients, you know, then I, I think that's where we can, you know, have the greatest impact. That's Ryan Meldrum. He's an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Florida International University. And his new study on digital self-harm was recently published in the journal Deviant Behavior. Ryan Meldrum, thank you. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening, and go have big ideas.